1: I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the day of reckoning that our guest, Eugene Sterley says is coming for U.S. fiscal policy. And we'll also get Gene's take on why the budget is and has been transferring resources from America's youth to richer, older generations. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson join the conversation. Well, uh, Gene Sturley is one of Washington's most noted experts on the federal budget. He is an Institute Fellow and the Richard B. Fisher Chair at the Urban Institute. He was Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury uh, Department of Treasury for Tax Analysis. And he served as president of the National Tax Association and was co-director of the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center and chair of the 1999 technical panel advising Social Security on its methods and assumptions. So he's got quite a good background to talk about these issues. He's the the author of uh, many books, including one of my favorites called Dead Men Ruling in 2014, that explains why so much of today's budget and uh, projected budgets were determined years ago. And I understand Gene is working on a forthcoming book that we will have him back to talk about uh, at the appropriate time. So Gene, Tori and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future.
2: Hi, Bob. Good
3: to be here. Uh,
1: good to uh good to have you back gene you know i'm a big fan of your column which i didn't mention in the introduction but you write a column called the government we deserve and uh it really is interesting because it uh, you often point out some important trends uh in fiscal and economic policy that have flown under the radar screen uh with all the focus that we have on day-to-day activities so I wanted to have you on the show to discuss some of your recent columns. And uh, let's begin with uh, the one you wrote, uh, released on September 25th, called, and it was also published in Barron's uh, back in August, called, uh, uh, well, it, it warns of a day of reckoning for fiscal policy. Uh, so that sounds almost biblical. What, what do you mean? by that? What is the day of reckoning that, uh, that you see coming?
3: Well, I see it on on several fronts, Uh, but both in fiscal and monetary policy, we've gone through several decades where uh, we've relied as a government on essentially covering our expenses by borrowing, uh, and we've relied on juicing up the economy by continually having very low, and actually on an after-inflation, after-tax basis, uh, negative cost of borrowing. Uh, and uh, my point is somewhat simple. I just can't see the debt growing forever. It's a Concord coalition, uh, you know, <laughs> almost part of its Bible, if you want to call yeah. it that. Uh, but I see the same thing on monetary policy. You know, this, you know, you, you can't have you can have negative real rates with inflation, but it's pretty hard to have negative nominal rates. And it's just we've gone down this path for so long. I think it's ending. And that brings a day of reckoning. Uh, Let me give you one statistic that even I found surprising, although uh, the three of you probably know it well. But I looked at uh, the uh, debt to GDP in 1980 and I looked at interest cost relative to GDP. I'm talking about federal debt and and federal interest cost. Uh, And the federal debt is essentially quadrupled, roughly since then. I think it was something like 26 percent of GDP in 1980 when we worried about whether the Reagan tax cuts or you know could be afforded, it's now you know essentially at 100 percent of GDP. So it's quadrupled. It's interesting that the interest cost as a share of uh, the debt, I mean, as a share of GDP, has basically been the same. Uh, so you've had this fourfold growth in debt without any increase in interest cost. Well, that's allowed Congress to get by for a long time. Uh, with thinking that there's no consequence to borrowing more because at least it's not showing up in the interest rate. Well, that that day's ending for for two reasons, and I'll stop there and let you throw in some more questions, but for two reasons. One is the interest rate's not going to fall much further, I don't think. In fact, it didn't fall much further. It actually was, and that was part of the article, it actually went up recently uh, by several percentage points nominally. It even went up in real terms. Uh, so that day ended, but also... Uh, uh, at some point, uh, these additional interest costs, when they're not offset by a lower interest rate, will continually add interest costs. And I don't think people fully realize that if interest rates even just stay common, when you start running debt at this level, the compounding really does start adding up. It's not offset by the lower interest rates.
1: Well, just to build on that statistic, uh, uh, interest costs, I was surprised when I looked into this earlier this year that the uh in- while interest costs uh, have stayed remarkably low, as you point out, um, the projection going forward, even with the you know projected f- relatively low rates that uh, CBO is using, interest costs exceed their highest level as a percentage of GDP within the ten year budget window. It's like it's over three percent, three and a half percent, something like that. And of course, going up so it
3: is a a, a rising burden um so let's let, let yeah. let just add on, on on the monetary side uh i i've written for a long time about my problem with negative uh cost of borrowing because i think it's one of the causes of growing wealth inequality because the when you look at, at asset growth versus debt uh for a lot of the lower and middle income classes additional debt is just reducing their net worth uh, in the richer classes, the low cost of borrowing is allowing them to leverage up and buy assets really on the cheap. And so it's actually adding to wealth inequality. And it's also, I think, leading to unproductive investment, because if you have a negative cost of borrowing, uh, all you have to do is get a negative return from your uh, asset that's less negative than your cost of borrowing, and you can make money. So I think it's it's causing incentives uh, to have weak and uh, sometimes bad investment. We're financing a lot of things that aren't all that productive.
1: Do you think the Fed is on the right track in uh, trying to get inflation back down to
3: 2%? Oh, definitely on the right track on inflation because it turns out inflation also uh, increases tax subsidies for borrowing. That's a complication. I'm, I'm not going to get all the details, but basically you're deducting the interest, the inflationary portion of the interest cost, and that that literally adds to the tax subsidy uh, for borrowing. Uh, But uh, so I think, yes, we need to get inflation under control. The question for me is whether the real rate of interest should go back down towards zero, which the CBO comes pretty close to saying uh, that they're projecting. But I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's such a good thing. I understand why there's pressure uh, to do that in the short run. But I think long run, uh, it's, it's not a good long term policy. I think you should have a positive but very modest real rate. Sure, you want to jump in?
2: Sure. Um, so the you know one of the things you write about a lot um, is uh, entitlements, Social Security, Medicare. Um, they're you know two of the programs that are contributing to uh, growth in the federal debt. Um, but the projected insolvencies in those two major entitlement programs are now inside the ten-year budget window for the first time. And I'm wondering what this means for Americans who are. 10 years away from retirement, you know, the the current retirees and near retirees, those defined as being, you know, within 10 years of retirement, they used to be a protected class uh, when it came time to talk about Social Security and Medicare reform proposals. But now that math seems to make that impossible. So I'm wondering what near term retirees should expect from Social Security and Medicare.
3: Right. So let's let's start with uh, a balance sheet or an income state view of the world. Uh, you can't protect everybody. And if you have growing cost, interest cost, and cost of health care and, and cost of retirement, uh, somebody's got to pay. And so to say that uh, uh, retirees and near retirees are protected said we're going to put even more of the burden on the unprotected groups which are, to a large extent, the groups that have been losing out uh, in the economy for some time now. That actually, if you look at wealth and, and, and market income particularly, that includes the working class, includes uh, uh, people of color, it includes uh, uh, the young. So uh, I just want to make clear that saying we're going to protect uh, people my age, for instance, is basically saying that I'm not going to bear the cost of, of the burden I'm putting on on everybody else. Uh, uh, but I think uh, it's always been the tradition that uh, that Congress is not going to take away some benefit, particularly for people who have come to rely upon it. That's pretty hard to do. And then the question is, who are the who are the uh, who are the people that are going to be retiring in the near term, and who are the people that uh, 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 that are going to pr- be protected along those lines? And as I say, the more people you protect, the more you shove the cost onto the unprotected groups. So I think. People near retirement, even if they're not protected, I think the change in the benefit structure is usually so gradual that the, the change would be pretty modest for them, particularly on the social security side.
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing trends in U.S. fiscal policy with Eugene Sterley of the Urban Institute and author of a column called The Government We Deserve. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing trends in U.S. fiscal policy with Eugene Sterley of the Urban Institute and the author of a column called The Government We Deserve, which you can find on Substack. Uh, Steve, you want to try to weave together some of the uh, themes from uh, our first section?
0: Yeah. So we we talked uh, a little bit about interest rates and, uh, Social Security Medicare and the intergenerational wealth transfer. So let me let me see if I can put all that together. So, you know, we typically think about Social Security, we tax, or Social Security and Medicare, we tax younger workers, the payroll tax, and we pay benefits, Social Security, you know, monthly cash benefits and health insurance benefits under Medicare. So there's an intergenerational wealth transfer of taxing workers and transferring it to, to retirees and seniors and, and disabled. Uh and then we also talked about interest rates and how low interest rates have allowed older generations to buy into the stock market through their retirement plans and to buy into housing. And We've seen a huge increase in, in the cost of housing. And so I guess from your perspective, Gene, I mean, how much have, has, has younger generations, in a sense, they're perhaps uh, uh, suffering from both of these effects because, you know, they're bearing the tax burden of the transfer payment programs like Social Security, and Medicare, but they're also bearing the burden of low interest rates because what's happened that their parents and grandparents have bought into housing. They bought into stock market and we've seen the value of stocks and the value of housing go up so that now younger workers are facing the prospects of being unable to buy a house. They're facing the prospect with markets that still at relatively all time highs. They're unlikely to see the same high rates of return going forward, certainly in the near term. So, you know, are, are younger generations doubly burdened by both the low interest rate
3: policy and the entitlement policy? I well, think you you actually stated it correctly, Steve. I'm not sure I, I, I need to elaborate on it. Uh, they really <laughs> are. The question has always been that if the younger generations are a lot richer uh, than the older generations, then there's an argument that maybe it's not so bad if older generations pass on additional debt to them. Uh, I I don't necessarily buy into that argument. It seems to be the long history of humankind is that each generation tries to make things better for the next generation. And in some sense, in a social sense, we've done something very, very unique in in modern times. You know, we no longer necessarily have older generations making those types of transfers to younger generations, but coming to expect. Uh, indirectly, often maybe not directly, coming to expect that the younger generations are going to be the ones uh, that they rely upon, at least to, to a much greater extent than than in the past. The history, and you know it better than almost anyone, Steve, but the history of Social Security and and Medicare and healthcare in general has been one where uh, a lot was promised to early generations, which they didn't have to save for, and that was a good idea because the elderly particularly, but also the disabled and some other groups we protected them were poorer than everyone else. That's no longer necessarily true. In fact, some late, latest CBO numbers say that the elderly is are now richer, if you count at least the value of their healthcare, and we could de- debate whether that should be counted or not, are richer than the younger generation. So how much more should we increasingly make transfers from the young to the, to, to, to the old? Uh, and actually there's a great confirmation which uh of your thesis which shows up in the data you don't have to believe me because you think maybe i'm speaking politically or have some some biased view if you look at what's happened to the wealth distribution in the economy the young have and the young it's not just the young you compare something over the last 30 or 40 years and i may have these statistics in exact i i could i could give them to you on the side uh but the uh the oldest generation, the people who are now retired, their wealth relative to 30 or 40 years ago has, has essentially doubled, and the wealth of the economy is more than doubled. So, so that makes sense. You go down to the groups that are like 40 to 50, and their growth rate is whatever 50, 60, 70 percent. You go down to the young, and uh, it's often negative. Whereas you know the notion that a you know rising tide will raise all boats, it hasn't done that. It's raised this boat and lowered some of the other boats. Over time, and that's that's just in the data uh, on what's happening to the young versus versus the old, and we could add student debt to this problem.
2: Gene, I'm wondering if this sort of growing inequality between younger workers and older workers has opened a door to some entitlement reforms that were kind of an anathema, if you will, in the late 90s, when I first started working on these issues, I mean, we sort of cracked open the door on means testing Medicare, you know, but means testing Social Security was just considered, you know, no, that was just such a no-go zone. Um, But now that we're seeing this big, huge transfer from younger to older generations, do we see, for example, means testing Social Security benefits as being a potential solution if only to you know, if we're using general revenues to finance Social Security, but then we're also means testing Social Security, that puts some of that money back into the Treasury, which can then go back into things like Pell Grants for students, et cetera. Is 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 means testing becoming more acceptable potentially as a potential reform?
3: So so we have to we have to define means testing. I think you know in theory, Social Security hasn't done it because the tax rate has been so low relative well, to benefits, but in theory. The benefit rate structure benefit in, uh, benefits does cut back on benefits at the top relative to benefits at the bottom relative to the to the taxes that they contribute. So you already have, if you want, might want to call it a progressive rate schedule. You for the the listener might make an analogy to the income tax rate schedule. Only like this is not on taxes you pay, but on benefits you receive. Mm-hmm. I think most reforms that that do get into benefit adjustments. Uh, do cut back on that significantly. Uh, They basically say that the growth and future benefits that's promised to future generations will be much lower than perhaps currently promised, Mm -hmm. although often at the top, uh, not at the bottom. So that essentially, I'm I'm being long-winded here, but that essentially flattens the benefit uh, in some ways like a means test would do. There's another definition of means testing, however, that I think there would be a mistake, which is that you cut some people back to zero. One reason is, I think there is some notion that if you've contributed to the system, you should get something back. Mm-hmm. You know, and say you get nothing back because your income's up, that's sort of you. It's a double whammy, you're going to pay the tax. Although we do it in other parts of our system, but you're going to pay the tax and not get something back. But I think there's a further objection to that. And that is, it places a huge reward on people who retire versus don't retire. Uh, because you can retire and thereby meet a means test. And this is a much bigger problem, say, with the elderly, the non-elderly. Non-elderly can can drop out of the workforce, but you often can't survive very long, and the benefits aren't that high if you do it. Whereas uh, at elderly ages, we've gone to a system where the average couple now gets benefits for about 30 years uh, and often retires for about 20. So there's this extraordinary period of retirement that we've set up in this system. It's probably the major social change in our economy over the last 50 or 60 years, if you think about it, extraordinary growth in in retirement and years of retirement and, and what we the leisure that and opportunities we have during those years. And to say that if I drop out of the workforce, I get Social Security, uh, but if I stay in the workforce I don't, I think would be a mistake.
1: Do you think that uh you mentioned early retire or so-called early retirement. Um you can start claiming benefits at 62. Is that a problem? I mean, should we be thinking about raising that early uh, so-called early retirement or early eligibility age, particularly now that the normal retirement age is going up to sixty seven, so there's a, a bigger gap there. And I, you know I find that that's one of the more difficult uh, things to to talk about because people say, well, you know, some people, people like us you know white collar workers you know scholars maybe sitting around can think about working to whatever age they want to but uh, you know not everybody can do you how, well how do you see that figuring in social security reform
3: i think it's a, a huge issue you're right about the politics the, the two biggest demonstrations against macron in france and vladimir putin <laughs> in russia have been over raising the retirement age
1: and then nobody wants to replicate that here, I guess.
3: <laughs> but, but but it's but it's been, it's been largely politicized, among other things. If you increase the retirement age, it's it's. Uh, but I should say beyond that, there's a lot of things one could do in Social Security. We don't have time to get into all of it. I probably should talk to Steve on the side on a lot of it. There's a lot of things you can do in Social Security to change the signals of the system, to tell people now they're owed when they have life expectancies often of twenty years or more, particularly for the people who are healthy and telling people they're old, which they do, they say you're eligible for old age assistance, old age survivors of disability insurance uh, when you're 62. So there's a lot that can be done there. But the reason I'm saying this is such an important long-term issue, because it's gonna take her quite a while to to adjust, is that if people work more, you can keep up a a higher annual benefit and you can uh, keep down the tax rate that you have to impose either directly or implicitly through general revenues. So it's the one feature that allows benefits to stay up higher and taxes not to be raised as much because if people work longer, they will be uh, receiving benefits for fewer years, or even if there's an actuarial adjustment, they'll be contributing more revenues to the system. Uh, the difficulty is that it's like so many long-term issues, it takes, it takes a long term to adjust to this economy we've created. Uh, so you're not really going to do much for people in retirement or near retirement, or it would make much difference uh, for them. But long term, I, I had numbers from Steve Goss, who is the chief actuary of Social Security. Now, these are a little bit old, but it said in the 75th year, just, just indexing the retirement age for longevity. You know, increasing uh, uh, the retirement age uh, by one year for every one year that, that people live, uh, that that actually would actually reduce the long term, the 75th year deficit by roughly half. So long term, it comp- compounds and really makes a difference. Short term, it, do- it doesn't solve a lot of our near term problems, which we really haven't gotten to discussing, but they're due to the baby boom retirement.
1: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing trends in U.S. fiscal policy with uh, Eugene Sterley of the Urban Institute and author of a column called The Government We Deserve, which you can find on Substack. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing trends in U.S. fiscal policy with Eugene Sturley of the Urban Institute and author of the column, The Government We Deserve, which you can find on Substack. Steve, you want to pick up? We were talking about Social Security, early retirement age, and uh, signal sending.
0: Well, yeah. So so one of the arguments that we often hear uh, as to why we shouldn't raise the retirement age is that it's not fair to lower income lower socioeconomic status and let, let me let me back up so it is true that the average life expectancy has gone up tremendously since obviously since social security was created the fact that average life expectancy goes up that doesn't mean that everybody has benefited equally some some you know the higher income higher socioeconomic status, their life expectancies have gone up more, whereas the lower income lower socioeconomic status their incomes their income their life expectancy has gone up less so is this sort of differential between the lower and higher income life expectancy differences is that is that a legitimate argument as to why we shouldn't raise the retirement age because it would be unfair to the to the lower income folks
3: I think. The proper way to think about this issue is how can we target benefits to that group that is either in ill health or has uh, jobs that are too difficult to uh, sustain and so on and so forth. Uh, so I'll give you an analogy. Suppose we had a, a program of government uh, and that program of government went into some area of the city that was had some poor people, a number of poor people, and we threw money off of the roof of some building in that uh, that part of the city. And then you, Steve, came along and said, you know, I, I, I think we should get rid of this program. And people said, well, wait a second, we've got these poor people here who really can make use of this money. And of course, the answer is not that you don't care about the poor people, but why would you want to allocate the money that way? So we've done some studies uh, uh, with the retirement uh, project at the Urban Institute. We found that uh, the uh, failure to adjust, this going into the future, the failure to adjust the retirement age just for longevity, that the big beneficiaries are people in the top quintile. Because they're the ones that live longer. They're the ones that are most likely to be able to make use of, of this money. If everybody lived the same amount, uh, it would the, the adjustment in the retirement age would basically in the current system for reasons I will get into is basically proportional. But they have di- Because they have different life expectancies, that's not true. 40% of the people who, uh, I think we started at age 40, something like this, maybe it was 25, but who were alive at that time, 40% of them either didn't make it to 62 and therefore get no benefits out about more years of retirement, or they get on disability insurance, which is not affected uh, by the retirement age. So the big beneficiaries, which you allude to, the, the big beneficiaries are the, are the rich. And so the failure to adjust the retirement age disproportionately favors the rich. So then you have to ask the question, well, do I still care about these other people? I do, but giving all this money quite bluntly, probably to the people, the poor of us, versus the people we really want to target it to, uh, how can can I get more to the people we target it to? And so there are a number of options out there. None are perfectly clean because we have no perfect way of measuring disability, but I think we could create a more liberal disability definition, maybe related to the work you've had uh, from say age 60 onward. So we could cover a lot of the people who, who might be hurting. I mean, another aspect which really takes us beyond the question of social security, but social security should be considered in the context of the whole budget, is to bump up wage subsidies for these uh, people at younger ages when they really can benefit from them because we know that they're still alive then. So that's how you can target money uh, to that group, but but having a program that spends huge amounts of, mo- of money towards people with higher income and increasingly does so over time is an extraordinarily targeted, inefficient way to take care of the problems.
0: So, so essentially, you're saying the failure to raise the retirement age exacerbates the welfare transfer to the rich. or the, Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Very,
3: the data are very clear on this. Just like some earlier questions we talked about, you don't have to believe me. There's <laughs> the, the wealth of the young versus the wealth of the young. You, you don't, and you could you could work back and figure out why some of these things are happening. Right.
1: Well, let's talk about uh, uh, changing the subject here. Let's talk about healthcare uh, spending in the in the budget. I think when we look at the long term future of the budget, programmatically, healthcare is the biggest driver of, of spending more so than, than social security. And part of that is, uh, the aging of the population, which, uh, social security, uh, experiences as well with healthcare. You also have, uh, healthcare cost growth and there's, you know, there's been some slowdown in, or at least, the the way it's been calculated slowdown in, so-called excess cost growth, which, without getting into the details, is just sort of the extent to which healthcare costs tend to rise faster than normal inflation, faster than per capita GDP, and so healthcare, which is about a quarter of the federal budget, uh, is uh, you know taking up more and more of the expenses. Um, so, um, Gene, what? How do you think we should look at uh, this problem? of growing health care costs and the federal budget?
3: Uh, I'm going to try to divide this into two questions, is how do I view the, the issue in general, and then this whole question of, of whether we know whether excess costs, are, are, costs are, are starting to slow down. Let me do the latter one first. Uh, uh, I've argued that the estimators who look at this issue should look at the share of the increase in GDP that goes to an increase in health care. And for a long time, that's been uh, upward as high as thirty percent. That of every additional dollar uh, that the nation uh, uh, gains in income, thirty cents on that dollar has been going uh, to health care. Uh, and very seldom in recent years has it dropped, say, below twenty. And in fact, that's one reason why health costs have risen from two and five and ten percent of GDP now towards twenty percent. And so I don't, I don't know that that numbers actually slowing down enough. And the recent years have been so affected by things like COVID and uh uh and inflation temporarily above what everybody expected. So maybe the the, the people who are charging the prices for healthcare didn't raise raise them as fast. So I, I don't think we really know enough over the last few years, but I think you also have to estimate it the right way. For the bigger budget issue, uh my view is that uh healthcare is really the only part of the budget where the power of appropriations has essentially been passed on not to the executive branch, which is sometimes a congressional complaint. They skipped the executive branch, they passed it on to the public in general. Uh, largely providers who often can either, in some cases, charge what price they want are uh, to customers who can uh, demand extra health care. I mean, when the commercial on TV says, call your doctor, to find out if you want this additional drug as well. Uh, they're not saying call your doctor and be sure to come up with enough money to pay for it. It's call your doctor and don't worry, somebody in your insurance uh, world is going to cover that marginal, that, that new cost. And I should mention also, when you if you add in everything, including uh, state and local and, and government employees and, and tax subsidies, government now contributes about 65 cents on the dollar. For healthcare, so you know they are they are the they're they're not only the 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 uh, you know the the flagship they're they're the ma- the main battleships behind the the flagship, uh, and so they they're driving a lot of this by the by the way that their insurance is structured. It's not just the way private insurance is structured, and so I, I think you just can't you can't we can argue about how you put this the system into a budget i think the simple fact is you you just violate every budget principle there is by turning the power of appropriations onto a private sector that can charge other people a private i should say not private sector, but private people and private companies
1: well let's get into um what could you do to bring the, the more budget discipline to the healthcare sector
3: the, the logic is, and I've also written on this as well, is somebody's got to be able to say no. And the great difficulty in healthcare, it's not just saying no to things that are proven to be worthless, it's saying no to things that might cost a dollar to get only 50 cents worth of benefits. And it's not that I don't care about 50 cents more benefits in healthcare. It's like I think there's a lot of greater needs in our society, again, for these groups that are being left behind. Uh, that uh, that I think uh, need to be attention. And by the way, in healthcare, it also means putting more money in preventative care, which does far more good per dollar, gives you far more bang per buck than acute care or chronic care. Uh, so somebody has to say no, and it's one of three, I think, logically. It's either the individual says no, says no, which is what we do for a lot of market goods. But in the case of healthcare, that's not going to work because it's expensive enough that few people can come up with the, with the dollars. And when they're operating table, they're not going to be able to say no. Uh, it's some intermediary, like an insurance company, uh, or so forth, or it's the government. And you've got the latter two, some sense already in Medicare, with Medicare Advantage, which says this intermediary gets something like a premium support, and then they've got to keep within that budget. And you've got some of this with the price control side, the traditional Medicare. So basically, those two parts of Medicare, to give the simple example, had just have to be reinforced that there is indeed a limit in both cases prices can ratchet down to stay within that budget if you're on the traditional medicare and uh, in the medicare advantage you go towards uh setting a premium that's that's a maximum premium and i have a, my favorite of those two but my main point is you got to put both anything you've got into a budget
1: you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing trends in U.S. fiscal policy with Eugene Sterling of the Urban Institute. He's the author of a column called The Government We Deserve, which you can find on Substack. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing Current trends in U.S. fiscal policy with Eugene Sterley of the Urban Institute. Um, Steve, got a and question? So,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, so, so we were talking about interest rates at the beginning of the show, and I just wanted to follow up with a related question. So, you know, for the last basically decade and a half, we've had really low interest rates. I mean, I, I know, I know people who have 30-year home mortgages, they're paying, you know, 3% on their mortgage. And, you know, now with, of course, that's had two effects. One, interest rates are low. They can buy houses. That tends to push up the value of housing. So housing prices are now high and interest rates are low. Well, now we're seeing the, the the reversal of that trend where interest rates are going up. Mortgages now are approaching 7%. That's putting downward pressure on home prices. So what's what's the risk here for the economy and for the banking sector, where essentially you've got banks with mortgages that are, Paying 3%. So they're earning that 3%. And now that interest rates are going up, that's going to put downward pressure on the value of those mortgages from the bank's perspective. But it's also going to cause them to have to pay their depositors more money, higher interest rates. If you're a bank, you want to get depositors, you got to pay them an interest rate that's competitive. So if the bank ends up paying, more than three percent to its depositors, but it's only earning three percent on its mortgages. It's going to be underwater. So the, you know the, you've got potential trouble here for the banking industry, um, and and obviously for the broader economy.
3: So what are, are you concerned there at all? I'm I'm very concerned. Uh, I, I think that's one aspect of of what I have measured as the largest wealth, at least post World War II, wealth bubble we've ever had. I compared the ratio of total household wealth from Federal Reserve data uh, to GDP from all the years to uh, up to 1990. And it was never above 4.0. That is, wealth was about four times GDP or national income. Uh, Actually, traditionally about 3.7. It's more recently jumped up to 6.5. What that's meant uh, it may even be more than that now. It means that for every $100,000 of household wealth that's measured out there, if it had maintained the type of value relative to GDP it did in the post-war period up to 1990, it would be worth about uh, 60000 So you've got either... you. So basically, if you took a 40% hit, you'd only be back to about where you were in that pre-90 era. And all of that, I think, or most of that is due to these very, very low interest rates, which come about for all sorts of speculative reasons, federal policy, federal reserve policy among them, but also uh, investment from abroad, oligarchs looking for a place to park their money, developing countries wanting to have a dollars, so on. I think that's extremely dangerous, and it creates the exact situation you talked about, Steve. Uh, the old story used to be that uh, banks would uh, pay depositors 3% and lend at 6 and that was the story. and That's how they made their money. That was short term versus versus you want to a long term rate. But it dropped down to the point where banks were having to pay zero, actually negative in real terms and, and lending, as you say, at three. And all of a sudden, if you start going back the other direction, uh, they may be in trouble. But they're not the only ones in trouble. Uh, a lot of people are speculating that commercial real estate, uh, is in big trouble now, and that's not just to COVID, but because they've relied for so long on these negative cost of borrowing. And I should indicate it's it's complicated. It's not just after inflation; it's after you get a tax subsidy for borrowing because you deduct the inflationary po- portion of interest. And there's also all these bankruptcy protections. So for a lot of people, they're very, extremely well protected in that, or they were in that market. But you raise the interest rate, and that just really threatens uh, threatens them in their case for the value of what they're getting out of their out of the commercial real estate, the rent they're getting as opposed to the bank where it's the uh uh the money they're getting from uh from uh uh from uh, borrowers. So I think we've got a huge issue and I see a lot of issues, uh, you know, the 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 crash of the pound at one point, the Chinese real estate market. I think this is a worldwide phenomenon. I think it's it's a really tough tightrope and we're gonna have to walk and I don't I don't know the complete answer, but I I, I don't think necessarily going back to negative Borrowing rates is going to be a good thing long term for the economy. Um, I wish that, I the- that sounds
1: that sounds that sounds pretty depressing. Um, uh, Jean, um, maybe we can uh, end on on something of a more positive note. Uh, uh, Tori, can you uh, can you elevate us? <laughs> 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 Lift I our hope spirits. So.
2: <laughs> I hope So um, so I had a question and. You know, in a September 9th column, Jane, that you wrote on a US gross domestic product, GDP, um, you were celebrating the fact that we had sort of reached a, a critical sort of psychological threshold and that US GDP was now about $200,000 per household, so on an average basis. And you asked this critical question that I think also probably befuddles the Biden administration right now, which is why do Americans have so much trouble celebrating? Our good fortune these days: the economy is growing, inflation is receding, the unemployment rate is low. It looks like the Federal Reserve has managed a soft landing. Yet, people are really, really unhappy. Um, they think that you know stewardship of the economy is poor. Um, what What do you think is going on with this? What, at least on its surface, appears to be cognitive dis- dissonance. This you know, disparity between what's happening, what people feel is happening?
3: Yeah, I I, I wish I knew the answer exactly. I, part of my column is just saying we we should be celebrating more, mm-hmm. you know, what we have. Uh, certainly, I know personally, uh, I'm living a lot longer than my parents did. And that's because I got better health care. By the way, people don't count health care at all in their income. Mm hmm. Uh, That's because it comes out from the employer, from government. So they don't even count it. They don't see it coming across as cash. So people don't even count a lot of the things that benefit them. Uh, They don't count the improvement, whatever our complaints are about – the utilities and 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 the streets and everything they're a lot better shaped than they used to be pollution a lot of types of pollution are down from the past mm-hmm. and we don't we just don't celebrate those things maybe because we don't see the cash but the other thing that's going on and i don't have any unique perspective on that is i think social media has clearly is clearly caused us to stress the negative yeah. uh and i think the very nature, our very human nature is to solve problems. So we're always looking for that next thing that can be made better. Mm-hmm. I mean, the four of us are doing that, right, <laughs> mm-hmm. on the budget. So, so it, it, you know, but we do that in our personal life, too. Uh, and so we do always have this sense of, of focusing on the negative. We just at times don't focus enough on the positive. And we don't that could cause personal depression as well as uh, national what would Jimmy Carter say? A national malaise or something?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
3: I don't have the complete answer to that. I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what we do in terms of our media to to stress the good as well as the bad. You see a few new shows trying to do a few more positive stories mm-hmm. uh, along the way, uh, celebrate uh, gains that we've had as as a people. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have an answer, uh, let me know too. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think I, I think I think I think it's a big issue, mm-hmm. but. But I, but I just, I just cited the numbers to say, hey, you know, again, let's look at the numbers, which is a lot of what I do in my profession. Hey, let's look at the numbers, people, and they tell us a lot by themselves. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think we do focus on the negative, and and particularly things like inflation. I mean, if somebody, you know, that's a, you have to pull out more money for your groceries or. Gasoline, it it sort of taints your view about everything. It's like, well, the economy is terrible. And that does it doesn't necessarily mean that the economy is terrible.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's the modern version of what they always used to say about local TV shows. You know, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah.
2: Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. You haven't heard that one, Dory? No, I haven't. Uh, but that's horrible.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's uh yeah, but that's a, that's
3: uh, our modern version.
1: It is, yeah. I think uh, in some ways I, I get disgust—not disgust. It, it, it just uh, people seem to want to be bothered about something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they seem to get a kick out of it.
2: Well, I'll leave you with this thought. I mean, I, I realize that the United States—you know—we have a lot of problems here, right? We we we're arguing with each other, and you know, our, our political system seems incapable of solving some problems. But you know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't rather live anywhere else. You know, As, this is. This is my flag. This is my country. I'm proud of us, and I'm. I, 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 we don't always do the right thing all the time, but we certainly try, and I think our hearts are in the right place. So,
3: right, and again, the data tell us that. Right. I mean, which way is immigration going?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Where, where do immigrants immigrants want to go? There are not, aren't a lot of people that want to leave the United States.
2: Yeah, and they're certainly not you know trying to get to Canada, right? <laughs> so they're they're stopping here. So we're not a way station on the way to Canada. So it's you know. I continue to believe that we are a beacon, although sometimes it's kind of hard to hold on to that. Yeah, it's, it's, it what, it's, it's what gets me out of bed every day.
1: Well, that is a good and unusually optimistic and mm-hmm. uh, hopeful way uh, to to wrap up our show this week. I want to thank our guest, Eugene Sterley of the Urban Institute. He's uh, author of a column called The Government We Deserve. You can find that on Substack. Uh, Thanks to Tori and Steve, as usual. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.